The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 10. The Family Endeavours to Cope with Their Betters. The Miseries of the Poor When They Attempt to Appear Above Their Circumstances. I now began to find that all my long and painful lectures upon temperance, simplicity, and contentment were entirely disregarded. The distinctions lately paid us by our betters awaked the pride which I had laid asleep, but not removed. Our windows, again, as formerly, were filled with washes for the neck and face. The sun was dreaded as an enemy to the skin without doors, and the fire as a spoiler of the complexion within. My wife observed that rising too early would hurt her daughter's eyes, that working after dinner would redden their noses, and she convinced me that the hands never looked so white as when they did nothing. Instead, therefore, of finishing George's shirts, we now had them new-modelling their old gauzes, or flourishing upon catgut. The poor Miss Flanbras, their former gay companions, were cast off as mean acquaintance, and the whole conversation ran upon high-life and high-lived company, with pictures, taste, Shakespeare, and the musical glasses. But we could have borne all this had not a fortune-telling gypsy come to raise us into perfect sublimity. The tawny Sibyl no sooner appeared than my girls came running to me for a shilling apiece to cross her hand with silver. To say the truth, I was tired of being always wise, and could not help gratifying their request, because I loved to see them happy. I gave each of them a shilling, though, for the honour of the family, it must be observed that they never went without money themselves, as my wife always generously let them have a guinea each to keep in their pockets, but with strict injunctions never to change it. After they had been closeted up with the fortune-teller for some time, I knew by their looks upon their returning that they had been promised something great. Well, my girls, how have you sped? Tell me, Livy, has the fortune-teller given thee a pennyworth? I protest, papa, said the girl, I believe she deals with somebody that's not right, for she positively declared that I am to be married to a squire in less than a twelvemonth. "'Well, now, Sophie, my child,' said I, "'and what sort of a husband are you to have?' "'Sir,' replied she, "'I am to have a lord soon after my sister has married the squire.' "'Oh,' cried I, "'is that all you are to have for your two shillings? "'Only a lord and a squire for two shillings? "'You fools, I could have promised you a prince and a nabob for half the money.' "'This curiosity of theirs, however, was attended with very serious effects.' We now began to think ourselves designed by the stars for something exalted, and already anticipated our future grandeur. It has been a thousand times observed, and I must observe it once more, that the hours we pass with happy prospects in view are more pleasing than those crowned with fruition. In the first case we cook the dish to our own appetite. In the latter nature cooks it for us. It is impossible to repeat the train of agreeable reveries we called up for our entertainment. We looked upon our fortunes as once more rising, and as the whole parish asserted that the squire was in love with my daughter, she was actually so with him, for they persuaded her into the passion. In this agreeable interval my wife had the most lucky dreams in the world, which she took care to tell us every morning, with great solemnity and exactness. It was one night a coffin and a crossbones, 
the sign of an approaching wedding, at another time she imagined her daughter's pockets filled with farthings, a certain sign of their being shortly stuffed with gold. The girls themselves had their omens, they felt strange kisses on their lips, they saw rings in the candle, purses bounced from the fire, and true love knots lurked in the bottom of every teacup. Towards the end of the week we received a card from the town ladies, in which, with their compliments, they hoped to see all our family at church the Sunday following. All Saturday morning I could perceive, in consequence of this, my wife and daughters in close conference together and now and then glancing at me with looks that betrayed a latent plot. To be sincere, I had strong suspicions that some absurd proposal was preparing for appearing with splendour the next day. In the evening they began their operations in a very regular manner, and my wife undertook to conduct the siege. After tea, when I seemed in spirits, she began thus. I fancy, Charles, my dear, we shall have a great deal of good company at our church to-morrow. Perhaps we may, my dear, returned I, though you need be under no uneasiness about that. You shall have a sermon, whether there be or not. That is what I expect, returned she, but I think, my dear, we ought to appear there as decently as possible, for who knows what may happen. Your precautions, replied I, are highly commendable. A decent behaviour and appearance in church is what charms me. We should be devout and humble, cheerful and serene. Yes, cried she, I know that, but I mean we should go there in as proper a manner as possible, not altogether like the scrubs about us. You are quite right, my dear, returned I, and I was going to make the very same proposal. The proper manner of going is, to go there as early as possible, to have time for meditation before the service begins. Foo, Charles, interrupted she, all that is very true, but not what I would be at. I mean, we should go there genteelly. You know the church is two miles off, and I protest I don't like to see my daughters trudging up to their pew all bloused and red with walking, and looking for all the world as if they had been winners at a smock race. No, my dear, my proposal is this. There are our two plough-horses, the colt that has been in our family these nine years, and his companion Blackberry that have scarce done an earthly thing for this month past. They are both grown fat and lazy. Why should not they do something as well as we? And let me tell you, when Moses has trimmed them a little, they will cut a very tolerable figure. To this proposal I objected that walking would be twenty times more genteel than such a paltry conveyance, as Blackberry was wall-eyed and the colt wanted a tail, that they had never been broke to the rain, but had an hundred vicious tricks and that we had but one saddle and pillion in the whole house. All these objections, however, were overruled, so that I was obliged to comply. The next morning I perceived them not a little busy in collecting such materials as might be necessary for the expedition. But as I found it would be a business of time, I walked on to the church before, and they promised speedily to follow. I waited near an hour in the reading-desk for their arrival, but not finding them come as expected, I was obliged to begin, and went through the service not without some uneasiness at finding them absent. This was increased when all was finished and no appearance of the family. I therefore walked back by the horseway, which was five miles round, though the footway was but two, and when got about halfway home, perceived the procession marching slowly forward towards the church, 
my son, my wife, and the two little ones exalted upon one horse, and my two daughters upon the other. I demanded the cause for their delay, but I soon found by their looks that they had met with a thousand misfortunes on the road. The horses had at first refused to move from the door till Mr. Bircher was kind enough to beat them forward for about two hundred yards with his cudgel. Next the straps of my wife's pillion broke down, and they were obliged to stop to repair them before they could proceed. After that one of the horses took it into his head to stand still, and neither blows nor entreaties could pervade with him to proceed. It was just recovering from this dismal situation that I found them. But, perceiving everything safe, I own their present mortification did not much displease me, as it would give me many opportunities of future triumph, and teach my daughters more humility. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 11. The Family Still Resolve to Hold Up Their Heads Michaelmas Eve happening on the next day, we were invited to burn nuts and play tricks at neighbour Flanborough's. Our late mortifications had humbled us a little, or it is probable we might have rejected such an invitation with contempt. However, we suffered ourselves to be happy. Our honest neighbour's goose and dumplings were fine, and the lamb's wool, even in the opinion of my wife, who was a connoisseur, was excellent. It is true his manner of telling stories was not quite so well. They were very long, and very dull, and all about himself, and we had laughed at them ten times before. However, we were kind enough to laugh at them once more. Mr. Birchall, who was of the party, was always fond of seeing some innocent amusement going forward, and set the boys and girls to blind man's buff. My wife, too, was persuaded to join in the diversion, and it gave me pleasure to think that she was not yet too old. In the meantime, my neighbour and I looked on, laughed at every feat, and praised our own dexterity when we were young. Hot cockles succeeded next, questions and commands followed that, and last of all they sat down to hunt the slipper. As every person may not be acquainted with this primeval pastime, it may be necessary to observe that the company at this play themselves in a ring upon the ground, all except one who stands in the middle, whose business is to catch a shoe, which the company shove about under their hams from one to another, something like a weaver's shuttle. As it is impossible in this case for the lady who is up to face all the company at once, the great beauty of the play lies in hitting her a thump with the heel of the shoe on that side least capable of making a defence. It was in this manner that my eldest daughter was hemmed in and thumped about, all bloused in spirits and bawling for fair play, fair play, with a voice that might deafen a ballad singer, when confusion on confusion who should enter the room but our two great acquaintances from town, Lady Blarney and Miss Carolina Wilhelmina Amelia Skeggs. Description would but beggar, therefore it is unnecessary to describe this new mortification. Death, to be seen by ladies of such high breeding in such vulgar attitudes. Nothing better could ensue from such a vulgar play of Mr. Flamborough's proposing. We seemed stuck to the ground for some time, as if actually petrified with amazement. The two ladies had been at our house to see us, and, finding us from home, 
came after us hither, as they were uneasy to know what accident could have kept us from church the day before. Olivia undertook to be our prolocutor, and delivered the whole in a summary way, only saying, we were thrown from our horses. At which account the ladies were greatly concerned, but, being told the family received no hurt, they were extremely glad. But, being informed that we were almost killed by the fright, they were vastly sorry. But, hearing that we had a very good night, they were extremely glad again. Nothing could exceed their complacence to my daughters. Their professions the last evening were warm, but now they were ardent. They protested a desire of having a more lasting acquaintance. Lady Blarney was particularly attached to Olivia. Miss Carolina Wilhelmina Amelia Skeggs, I love to give the whole name, took a greater fancy to her sister. They supported the conversation between themselves, while my daughters sat silent, admiring their exalted breeding. But as every reader, however beggarly himself, is fond of high-lived dialogues with anecdotes of lords, ladies, and knights of the garter, I must beg leave to give him the concluding part of the present conversation. All that I know of the matter, cried Miss Skeggs, is this, that it may be true, or it may not be true, but this I can assure your ladyship, that the whole rout was in a maze. His lordship turned all manner of colours, my lady fell into a sound, but Sir Tompkin, drawing his sword, swore he was hers to the last drop of his blood. Well, replied our peeress, this I can say, that the Duchess never told me a syllable of the matter, and I believe her grace would keep nothing a secret from me. This you may depend upon as fact, that the next morning my Lord Duke cried out three times to his valet de chambre, Jernigan, 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 bring me my garters. But previously I should have mentioned the very impolite behaviour of Mr. Burchell, who, during this discourse, sat with his face turned to the fire, and at the conclusion of every sentence would cry out, Fudge! An expression which displeased us all and in some measure dampened the rising spirit of the conversation. Besides, my dear Skeggs, continued our peeress, there is nothing of this in the copy of verses that Dr. Burdock made upon the occasion. Fudge! I'm surprised at that, cried Miss Skeggs, for he seldom leaves anything out, as he writes only for his own amusement. But can your ladyship favour me with a sight of them? Fudge! My dear creature, replied our peeress, do you think I carry such things about me? Though they are very fine to be sure, and I think myself something of a judge, at least I know what pleases myself. Indeed, I was ever an admirer of all Dr. Burdock's little pieces. For except what he does, and our dear Countess at Hanover Square, there's nothing comes out but the most lowest stuff in nature. Not a bit of high life among them. Fudge! Your ladyship should accept, says Tother, your own things in the ladies' magazine. I hope you'll say there's nothing now lived there, but I suppose we are to have no more from that quarter. Fudge! Why, my dear, says the lady, you know my reader and companion has left me to be married to Captain Roach, and as my poor eyes won't suffer me to write myself, I've been for some time looking out for another. A proper person is no easy matter to find, and to be sure, thirty pounds a year is a small stipend for a well-bred girl of character that can read, write, and behave in company. As for the chits about town, there is no bearing them about one. Fudge! That I know, cried Miss Skeggs, by experience, for of the three companions I had this last half-year, 
One of them refused to do plain work an hour in the day, another thought twenty-five guineas a year too small a salary, and I was obliged to send away the third because I suspected an intrigue with the chaplain. Virtue, my dear Lady Blarney, virtue is worth any price, but where is that to be found? Fudge! My wife had been for a long time all attention to this discourse, but was particularly struck with the latter part of it. Thirty pounds and twenty-five guineas a year made fifty-six pounds five shillings English money, all which was in a manner going a-begging, and might easily be secured in the family. She, for a moment, studied my looks for approbation, and, to own a truth, I was of opinion that two such places would fit our two daughters exactly. Besides, if the squire had any real affection for my eldest daughter, this would be the way to make her every way qualified for her fortune. My wife, therefore, was resolved that we should not be deprived of such advantages for want of assurance, and undertook to harangue for the family. I hope, cried she, your ladyships will pardon my present presumption. It is true we have no right to pretend to such favours, but yet it is natural for me to wish putting my children forward in the world, and I will be bold to say my two girls have had a pretty good education and capacity. At least the country can't show better. They can read, write, and cast accounts. They understand their needle, breadstitch, cross and change, and all manner of plain work. They can pink, point, and frill, and know something of music. They can do up small clothes, work upon catgut. My eldest can cut paper and my youngest has a very pretty manner of telling fortunes upon the cards. Fudge! When she had delivered this pretty piece of eloquence, the two ladies looked at each other for a few minutes in silence, with an air of doubt and importance. At last Miss Carolina Wilhelmina Amelia Skeggs condescended to observe that the young ladies, from the opinion she could form of them from so slight an acquaintance, seemed very fit for such employments. But a thing of this kind, madam, cried she, addressing my spouse, requires a thorough examination into characters, and a more perfect knowledge of each other. Not, madam, continued she, that I in the least suspect the young lady's virtue, prudence, and discretion, but there is a form in these things, madam, there is a form. My wife approved her suspicions very much, observing that she was very apt to be suspicious herself, but referred her to all the neighbours for a character. But this our peeress declined as unnecessary, alleging that her cousin Thornhill's recommendation would be sufficient, and upon this we rested our petition. End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Twelve. Fortune seems resolved to humble the family of Wakefield. Mortifications are often more painful than real calamities. When we returned home, the night was dedicated to schemes of future conquest. Deborah exerted much sagacity in conjecturing which of the two girls was likely to have the best place and most opportunities of seeing good company. The only obstacle to our preferment was in obtaining the squire's recommendation but he had already shown us too many instances of his friendship to doubt of it now. Even in bed my wife kept up the usual theme. Well, faith, my dear Charles, between ourselves, I think we have made an excellent day's work of it. 
"'Pretty well,' cried I, not knowing what to say. "'What, only pretty well?' returned she. "'I think it is very well. "'Suppose the girls should come to make acquaintances of taste in town. "'This I am assured of, that London is the only place in the world for all manner of husbands. "'Besides, my dear, stranger things happen every day. "'And, as ladies of quality are so taken with my daughters, "'what will not men of quality be?' Entre nous, I protest I like my Lady Blarney vastly, so very obliging. However, Miss Carolina Wilhelmina Aniela Skeggs has my warm heart. But yet, when they came to talk of places in town, you saw at once how I nailed them. Tell me, my dear, don't you think I did for my children there? Aye, returned I, not knowing well what to think of the matter. Heaven grant they may be both the better for it this day three months. This was one of those observations I usually made to impress my wife with an opinion of my sagacity. For if the girls succeeded, then it was a pious wish fulfilled. But if anything unfortunate ensued, then it might be looked upon as a prophecy. All this conversation, however, was only preparatory to another scheme, and indeed I dreaded as much. This was nothing less than that, as we were now to hold up our heads a little higher in the world, it would be proper to sell the colt, which was grown old, at a neighbouring fair, and buy us an horse that would carry single or double upon occasion, and make a pretty appearance at church or upon a visit. This, at first, I opposed stoutly. But it was as stoutly defended. However, as I weakened, my antagonist gained strength, till at last it was resolved to part with him. As the fair happened on the following day, I had intentions of going myself, but my wife persuaded me that I had got a cold, and nothing could prevail upon her to permit me from home. No, my dear, said she, our son Moses is a discreet boy, and can buy and sell to very good advantage. You know all our great bargains are of his purchasing. He always stands out and higgles, and actually ties them till he gets a bargain. As I had some opinion of my son's prudence, I was willing enough to entrust him with this commission. And the next morning I perceived his sisters mighty busy fitting out Moses for the fair, trimming his hair, brushing his buckles, and cocking his hat with pins. The business of toilet being over, we had at last the satisfaction of seeing him mounted upon the colt, with a deal-box before him to bring home groceries in. He had on a coat made of that cloth they call thunder and lightning, which, though grown too short, was much too good to be thrown away. His waistcoat was of gosling green, and his sisters had tied his hair with a broad black riband. We all followed him several paces from the door, bawling after him, good luck, good luck, till we could see him no longer. He was scarce gone when Mr. Thornhill's butler came to congratulate us upon our good fortune, saying that he overheard his young master mention our names with great commendation. Good fortune seemed resolved not to come alone. Another footman from the same family followed, with a card from my daughters, importing that the two ladies had received such pleasing accounts from Mr. Thornhill of all of us, that, after a few previous inquiries, they hoped to be perfectly satisfied. "'Aye,' cried my wife, "'I now see it is no easy matter to get into the families of the great,' But when one once gets in, then, as Moses says, one may go sleep. 
to this piece of humour, for she intended it for wit, my daughters ascended with a loud laugh of pleasure. In short, such was her satisfaction at this message, that she actually put her hand in her pocket, and gave the messenger sevenpence halfpenny. This was to be our visiting day. The next that came was Mr. Burchell, who had been at the fair. He brought my little ones a pennyworth of gingerbread each, which my wife undertook to keep for them, and give them by letters at a time. He brought my daughters also a couple of boxes, in which they might keep wafers, snuff, patches, or even money when they got it. My wife was usually fond of a weasel-skin purse, as being the most lucky, but this by the by. We had still a regard for Mr. Burchell, though his late rude behaviour was in some measure displeasing. Nor could we now avoid communicating our happiness to him, and asking his advice. Although we seldom followed advice, we were all ready enough to ask it. When he read the note from the two ladies, he shook his head, and observed that an affair of this sort demanded the utmost circumspection. This air of diffidence highly displeased my wife. I never doubted, sir, cried she, your readiness to be against my daughters and me. You have more circumspection than is wanted. However, I fancy when we come to ask advice, we will apply to persons who seem to have made use of it themselves. Whatever my own conduct may have been, madam, replied he, is not the present question, though, as I have made no use of advice myself, I should, in conscience, give it to those that will. As I was apprehensive this answer might draw on a repartee, making up by abuse what it wanted in wit, I changed the subject by seeming to wonder what could keep our son so long at the fair, as it was now almost nightfall. "'Never mind our son,' cried my wife. "'Depend upon it, he knows what he's about. I warrant we'll never see him sell his hen of a rainy day. I have seen him buy such bargains as would amaze one. I'll tell you a good story about that, that will make you spit your sides with laughing. But, as I live, yonder comes Moses, without an horse, and the box at his back.' As she spoke, Moses came slowly on foot, and sweating under the deal box, which he had strapped around his shoulders like a peddler. "'Welcome, welcome, Moses. Well, my boy, what have you brought us from the fair?' "'I have brought you myself,' cried Moses, with a sly look, and resting the box on the dresser. "'Aye, Moses,' cried my wife, "'that we know, but where is the horse?' "'I've sold him,' cried Moses, "'for three pounds, five shillings, and tuppence.' "'Well done, my good boy,' returned she. "'I knew you would touch them off. "'Between ourselves, three pounds, five shillings, and tuppence "'is no bad day's work. "'Come, let us have it, then.' "'I've brought back no money,' cried Moses again. "'I have laid it all out in a bargain, and here it is.' "'Pulling out a bundle from his breast. "'Here they are, a gross of green spectacles "'with silver rims and shagreen cases.' "'A gross of green spectacles,' repeated my wife in a faint voice, "'and you have parted with the colt, and brought us back nothing but a gross of green, paltry spectacles.' "'Dear mother,' cried the boy, "'why won't you listen to reason? I had them a dead bargain, or I should not have bought them. The silver rims alone will sell for double the money.' "'A fig for the silver rims,' cried my wife in a passion. "'I dare swear they won't sell for above half the money at the rate of broken silver, five shillings an ounce.' "'You need be under no uneasiness,' cried I, "'about selling the rims, for they are not worth sixpence, "'for I perceive they are only copper varnished over.' "'What? 
cried my wife. Not silver? The rim's not silver? No, cried I, no more silver than your saucepan. And so, returned she, we have parted with the colt, and have only got a gross of green spectacles with copper rims and shagreen cases. A murrin takes such trumpery. The blockhead has been imposed upon, and should have known his company better. There, my dear, cried I, you are wrong. He should not have known them at all. Marry, hang the idiot, returned she, to bring me such stuff. If I had them, I would throw them in the fire. There again, you are wrong, my dear, cried I, for though they be copper, we will keep them by us, as copper spectacles, you know, are better than nothing. By this time the unfortunate Moses was undeceived. He now saw that he had indeed been imposed upon by a prowling sharper, who, observing his figure, had marked him for an easy prey. I therefore asked the circumstances of his deception. He sold the horse, it seemed, and walked the fair in search of another. A reverend-looking man brought him to a tent, under pretense of having one to sell. Here, continued Moses, we met another man, very well-dressed, who desired to borrow twenty pounds upon these, saying that he wanted money, and would dispose of them for a third of the value. The first gentleman, who pretended to be my friend, whispered me to buy them, and cautioned me not to let so good an offer pass. I sent for Mr. Flamborough, and they talked him up as finely as they did me, and so at last we were persuaded to buy the two gross between us. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 13. Mr. Birchill is found to be an enemy, for he has the confidence to give disagreeable advice. Our family had now made several attempts to be fine, but some unforeseen disaster demolished each as soon as projected. I endeavoured to take the advantage of every disappointment, to improve their good sense in proportion as they were frustrated in ambition. You see, my children, cried I, how little is to be got by attempts to impose upon the world in coping with our betters. Such as are poor, and will associate with none but the rich, are hated by those they avoid, and despised by these they follow. Unequal combinations are always disadvantageous to the weaker side, the rich having the pleasure, and the poor the inconveniences that result from them. But come, Dick, my boy, and repeat the fable that you were reading to-day, for the good of the company. Once upon a time, cried the child, a giant and a dwarf were friends, and kept together. They made a bargain that they would never forsake each other, but go seek adventures. The first battle they fought was with two Saracens, and the dwarf, who was very courageous, dealt one of the champions a most angry blow. It did the Saracen but very little injury, who, lifting up his sword, fairly struck off the poor dwarf's arm. He was now in a woeful plight, but the giant, coming to his assistance, in a short time left the two Saracens dead on the plain, and the dwarf cut off the dead man's head out of spite. They then travelled on to another adventure. This was against three bloody-minded satyrs, who were carrying away a damsel in distress. The dwarf was not quite so fierce now as before, but for all that struck the first blow, which was returned by another that knocked out his eye. But the giant was soon up with them, 
and, had they not fled, would certainly have killed them every one. They were all very joyful for this victory, and the damsel, who was relieved, fell in love with the giant and married him. They now travelled far, and farther than I can tell, till they met with a company of robbers. The giant, for the first time, was foremost now, but the dwarf was not far behind. The battle was stout and long. Wherever the giant came, all fell before him. But the dwarf had liked to have been killed more than once. At last the victory declared for the two adventurers, but the dwarf lost his leg. The dwarf was now without an arm, a leg, and an eye, while the giant was without a single wound. Upon which he cried out to his little companion, My little hero, this is glorious sport. Let us get one victory more, and then we shall have honour for ever. No, cries the dwarf, who was by this time grown wiser. No, I declare off. I'll fight no more, for I find in every battle that you get all the honour and rewards, but all the blows fall on me. I was going to moralise this fable when our attention was called off to a warm dispute between my wife and Mr. Birchill upon my daughter's intended expedition to town. My wife very strenuously insisted upon the advantages that would result from it. Mr. Birchill, on the contrary, dissuaded her with great ardour, and I stood neuter. His present dissuasions seemed to be the second part of those which were received with so ill a grace in the morning. The dispute grew high, while poor Deborah, instead of reasoning stronger, talked louder, and at last was obliged to take shelter from a defeat in clamour. The conclusion of her harangue, however, was highly displeasing to us all. She knew, she said, of some who had their own secret reasons for what they advised, but for her part she wished such to stay away from her house for the future. Madam, cried Birchill, with looks of great composure, which tended to inflame her the more, as for secret reasons, you are right, I have secret reasons which I forbear to mention, because you are not able to answer those of which I make no secret. But I find my visits here are become troublesome. I'll take my leave therefore now, and perhaps come once more to take final farewell when I am quitting the country. Thus saying, he took up his hat, nor could the attempts of Sophia, whose looks seemed to upbraid his precipitancy, prevent his going. When gone, we all regarded each other for some minutes with confusion. My wife, who knew herself to be the cause, strove to hide her concern with a forced smile and an air of assurance, which I was willing to reprove. "'How, woman!' cried I to her. "'Is it thus we treat strangers? Is it thus we return their kindness?' Be assured, my dear, that these were the harshest words, and to me the most unpleasing that ever escaped your lips. Why would he provoke me then? replied she. But I know the motives of his advice perfectly well. He would prevent my girls from going to town, that he may have the pleasure of my youngest daughter's company here at home. But whatever happens, she shall choose better company than such low-lived fellows as he. Low-lived, my dear, do you call him? cried I. It is very possible we may mistake this man's character, for he seems upon some occasions the most finished gentleman I ever knew. Tell me, Sophia, my girl, has he ever given you any secret instances of his attachment? His conversation with me, sir, replied my daughter, has ever been sensible, modest, and pleasing. As to what else? No, never. Once, indeed, I remember to have heard him say he never knew a woman who could find merit in a man that seemed poor. 
such my dear cried i is the common cant of all the unfortunate or idle but i hope you've been taught to judge properly of such men and it would be even madness to expect happiness from one who has been so very bad an economist of his own your mother and i have now better prospects for you the next winter which you will probably spend in town will give you opportunities of making a more prudent choice what sophia's reflections were upon this occasion i can't pretend to determine but i was not displeased at the bottom that we were rid of a guest from whom i had much to fear our breach of hospitality went to my conscience a little but i quickly silenced that monitor by two or three specious reasons which served to satisfy and reconcile me to myself the pain which conscience gives the man who has already done wrong is soon got over conscience is a coward and those faults it has not strength enough to prevent it seldom has justice enough to accuse end of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith, recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 14. Fresh Mortifications, or a Demonstration that Seeming Calamities May Be Real Blessings. The journey of my daughters to town was now resolved upon, Mr. Thornhill having kindly promised to inspect their conduct himself, and to inform us by letter of their behaviour but it was thought indispensably necessary that their appearance should equal the greatness of their expectations, which could not be done without expense. We debated, therefore, in full council what were the easiest methods of raising money, or, more properly speaking, what we could most conveniently sell. The deliberation was soon finished. It was found that our remaining horse was utterly useless for the plough without his companion, and equally unfit for the road as wanting an eye. It was therefore determined that we should dispose of him for the purposes above mentioned at the neighbouring fair, and to prevent imposition that I should go with him myself. Though this was one of the first mercantile transactions of my life, yet I had no doubt about acquitting myself with reputation. The opinion a man forms of his own prudence is measured by that of the company he keeps, and as mine was mostly in the family way, I had conceived no unfavourable sentiments of my worldly wisdom. My wife, however, next morning at parting, after I had got some paces from the door, called me back to advise me, in a whisper, to have all my eyes about me. I had, in the usual forms, when I came to the fair, put my horse through all his paces, but for some time had no bidders. At last a chapman approached, and, after he had for a good while examined the horse round, found him blind of one eye. He would have nothing to say to him. A second came up, but, observing he had a spavin, declared he would not take him for the driving home. A third perceived he had a wind-gall, and would bid no money. A fourth knew by his eye that he had the bots. A fifth wondered what a plague I could do at a fair with a blind, spavined gold hack that was only fit to be cut up for the dog-kennel. By this time I began to have a most hearty contempt for the poor animal myself, and was almost ashamed at the approach of every customer. For though I did not entirely believe all the fellows told me, yet I reflected that the number of witnesses was a strong presumption they were right, and St. Gregory upon good works professes himself to be of the same opinion. 
I was in this mortifying situation when a brother clergyman, an old acquaintance, who had also business to the fair, came up and, shaking me by the hand, proposed adjourning to a public house and taking a glass of whatever we could get. I readily closed with the offer, and, entering an alehouse, we were shown into a little back room, where there was only a venerable old man who sat wholly intent over a large book which he was reading. I never in my life saw a figure that prepossessed me more favourably. His locks of silver-grey venerably shaded his temples, and his green old age seemed to be the result of health and benevolence. However, his presence did not interrupt our conversation. My friend and I discoursed on the various turns of fortune we had met, the Wistonian controversy, my last pamphlet, the archdeacon's reply, and the hard measure that was dealt me. But our attention was, in a short time, taken off by the appearance of a youth, who, entering the room, respectfully said something softly to the old stranger. "'Make no apologies, my child,' said the old man. "'To do good is a duty we owe to all our fellow-creatures. Take this. I wish it were more, but five pounds will relieve your distress, and you are welcome.' The modest youth shed tears of gratitude. And yet his gratitude was scarce equal to mine. I could have hugged the good old man in my arms. His benevolence pleased me so. He continued to read, and we resumed our conversation. Until my companion, after some time, recollecting that he had business to transact in the fair, promised to be soon back, adding that he always desired to have as much of Dr. Primrose's company as possible. The old gentleman, hearing my name mentioned, seemed to look at me with attention for some time and, when my friend was gone, most respectfully demanded if I was in any way related to the great Primrose, that courageous monogamist who had been the bulwark of the church. Never did my heart feel sincerer rapture than at that moment. Sir, cried I, the applause of so good a man as I am sure you are adds to that happiness in my breast which your benevolence has already excited. You behold before you, sir, that Dr. Primrose, the monogamist, whom you have been pleased to call great. You here see that unfortunate divine who has so long, and it would ill become me to say, successfully, fought against the deuterogamy of the age. Sir, cried the stranger, struck with awe, I fear I have been too familiar, but you'll forgive my curiosity, sir, I beg pardon. Sir, cried I, grasping his hand, you are so far from displeasing me by your familiarity, that I must beg you'll accept my friendship, as you already have my esteem. Then, with gratitude, I accept the offer, cried he, squeezing me by the hand. Thou glorious pillar of unshaken orthodoxy, and I do behold, I here interrupted what he was going to say, for though, as an author, I could digest no small flattery, yet now my modesty would permit no more. However, no lovers in romance ever cemented a more instantaneous friendship. We talked upon several subjects. At first I thought he seemed rather devout than learned, and began to think he despised all human doctrines as dross. Yet this no way lessened him in my esteem, for I had for some time begun privately to harbour such an opinion myself. I therefore took occasion to observe that the world in general began to be blamably indifferent as to doctrinal matters, and followed human speculations too much. I, sir, replied he, as if he had reserved all his learning to that moment, I, sir, the world is in its dotage. 
and yet the cosmogony or creation of the world has puzzled philosophers of all ages. What a medley of opinions have they not broached upon the creation of the world? Sankaniathon, Manitho, Barosus, and Ocellus Lucanus have all attempted it in vain. The latter had these words, Anarchon, Arachai, Atelutaion, Topan, which imply that all things have neither beginning nor end. Manitho also, who lived about the time of Nepucadon Asa, Asa being a Syriac word usually applied as a surname to the kings of that country, as Deglat Fael Asa, Nabon Asa, he, I say, formed a conjecture equally absurd, for, as we usually say, ecto biblion cubernetes, which implies that books will never teach the world, so he attempted to investigate. But, sir, I ask pardon, I am straying from the question. That he actually was, nor could I for my life see how the creation of the world had anything to do with the business I was talking of, but it was sufficient to show me that he was a man of letters, and I now reverenced him more. I was resolved, therefore, to bring him to the touchstone. But he was too mild and too gentle to contend for victory. Whenever I made any observation that looked like a challenge to controversy, he would smile, shake his head, and say nothing, by which I understood he could say much if he thought proper. The subject, therefore, insensibly changed from the business of antiquity to that which brought us both to the fair. Mine, I told him, was to sell an horse, and, very luckily indeed, his was to buy one for one of his tenants. My horse was soon produced, and in fine we struck a bargain. Nothing now remained but to pay me, and he accordingly pulled out a thirty-pound note and bid me change it. Not being in a capacity of complying with this demand, he ordered his footman to be called up, who made his appearance in a very genteel livery. Here, Abraham, cried he, go and get gold for this. You'll do it at neighbour Jackson's or anywhere. While the fellow was gone, he entertained me with a pathetic harangue on the great scarcity of silver, which I undertook to improve, by deploring also the great scarcity of gold so that by the time Abraham returned we had both agreed that money was never so hard to be come at as now. Abraham returned to inform us that he had been over the whole fair and could not get change, though he had offered half a crown for doing it. This was a very great disappointment to us all, but the old gentleman, having paused a little, asked me if I knew one Solomon Flanborough in my part of the country. Upon replying that he was my next-door neighbour, if that be the case, then, returned he, I believe we shall deal. You shall have a draft upon him, payable at sight. And let me tell you, he is as warm a man as any within five miles round him. Honest Solomon and I have been acquainted for many years together. I remember I always beat him at three jumps, but he could hop upon one leg farther than I. A draft upon my neighbour was to me the same as money, for I was sufficiently convinced of his ability. The draft was signed and put into my hands, and Mr. Jenkinson, the old gentleman, his man Abraham, and my horse, old Blackberry, trotted off very well pleased with each other. After a short interval being left to reflection, I began to recollect that I had done wrong in taking a draft from a stranger, and so prudently resolved upon following the purchaser and having back my horse. But this was now too late. I therefore made directly homewards resolving to get the draft changed into money at my friend's as fast as possible. I found my honest neighbour smoking his pipe at his own door, and informing him that I had a small bill upon him, he read it twice over, 
"'You can read the name, I suppose,' cried I, Ephraim Jenkinson. "'Yes,' returned he, "'the name is written plain enough, and I know the gentleman too, the greatest rascal under the canopy of heaven. This is the very same rogue who sold us the spectacles. Was he not a venerable-looking man, with grey hair and no flaps to his pocket-holes?' And did he not talk a long string of learning about Greek and cosmogony and the world? To this I replied with a groan, Aye, continued he, he has but that one piece of learning in the world, and he always talks it away whenever he finds a scholar in company. But I know the rogue and will catch him yet. Though I was already sufficiently mortified, my greatest struggle was to come in facing my wife and daughters. No truant was ever more afraid of returning to school, there to behold the master's visage, than I was of going home. I was determined, however, to anticipate their fury by first falling into a passion myself. But, alas, upon entering, I found the family no way disposed for battle. My wife and girls were all in tears, Mr. Thornhill having been there that day to inform them that their journey to town was entirely over. The two ladies, having heard reports of us from some malicious person about us, were that day set out for London. He could neither discover the tendency nor the author of these, but whatever they might be, or whoever might have broached them, he continued to assure our family of his friendship and protection. I found, therefore, that they bore my disappointment with great resignation, as it was eclipsed in the greatness of their own. But what perplexed us most was to think who could be so base as to asperse the character of a family so harmless as ours, too humble to excite envy, and too inoffensive to create disgust. End of chapter The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 15 All Mr. Birchill's Villainy at Once Detected the folly of being over-wise. That evening, and a part of the following day, was employed in fruitless attempts to discover our enemies. Scarce a family in the neighbourhood but incurred our suspicions, and each of us had reasons for our opinion best known to ourselves. As we were in this perplexity, one of our little boys, who had been playing abroad, brought in a letter-case, which he found on the green. It was quickly known to belong to Mr. Birchill, with whom it had been seen, and, upon examination, contained some hints upon different subjects. But what particularly engaged our attention was a sealed note, superscribed, the copy of a letter to be sent to the two ladies at Thornhill Castle. It instantly occurred that he was the base informer, and we deliberated whether the note should not be broke open. I was against it, but Sophia, who said she was sure that of all men he would be the last to be guilty of so much baseness, insisted upon its being read. In this she was seconded by the rest of the family, and at their joint solicitation I read as follows. Ladies, the bearer will sufficiently satisfy you as to the person from whom this comes. One at least the friend of innocence, and ready to prevent its being seduced. I am informed for a truth that you have some intention of bringing two young ladies to town, whom I have some knowledge of under the character of companions. As I would neither have simplicity imposed upon, nor virtue contaminated, 
I must offer it as my opinion that the impropriety of such a step will be attended with dangerous consequences. It has never been my way to treat the infamous or the lewd with severity, nor should I now have taken this method of explaining myself or reproving folly, did it not aim at guilt. Take therefore the admonition of a friend, and seriously reflect on the consequences of introducing infamy and vice into retreats where peace and innocence have hitherto resided. Our doubts were now at an end. There seemed, indeed, something applicable to both sides in this letter, and its censure might as well be referred to those to whom it was written as to us. But the malicious meaning was obvious, and we went no farther. My wife had scarce patience to hear me to the end, but railed at the writer with unrestrained resentment. Olivia was equally severe, and Sophia seemed perfectly amazed at his baseness. As for my part, it appeared to me one of the vilest instances of unprovoked ingratitude I had met with. Nor could I account for it in any other manner than by imputing it to his desire of detaining my youngest daughter in the country, to have more frequent opportunities of an interview. In this manner we all sat ruminating upon schemes of vengeance, when our little boy came running in, to tell us that Mr. Bircher was approaching at the other end of the field. It is easier to conceive than describe the complicated sensations which are felt from the pain of a recent injury and the pleasure of approaching vengeance. Though our intentions were only to upbraid him with his ingratitude, yet it was resolved to do it in a manner that would be perfectly cutting. For this purpose we agreed to meet him with our usual smiles, to chat in the beginning with more than ordinary kindness, to amuse him a little, and then, in the midst of the flattering calm, to burst upon him like an earthquake, and overwhelm him with the sense of his own baseness. This being resolved upon, my wife undertook to manage the business herself, as she really has some talents for such an undertaking. We saw him approach, he entered, drew a chair, and sat down. A fine day, Mr. Birchall, a very fine day, Doctor, though I fancy we shall have some rain by the shooting of my corns. The shooting of your horns, cried my wife in a loud fit of laughter, and then asked pardon for being fond of a joke. Dear madam, replied he, I pardon you with all my heart, for I protest I should not have thought it a joke had you not told me. Perhaps not, sir, cried my wife, winking at us, and yet I dare say you can tell us how many jokes go to an ounce. I fancy, madam, returned Birchall, you have been reading a jest book this morning. That ounce of jokes is so very good a conceit. And yet, madam, I had rather see half an ounce of understanding. I believe you might, cried my wife, still smiling at us, though the laugh was against her, and yet I have seen some men pretend to understanding that have very little. And no doubt, replied her antagonist, you have known ladies set up for wit that had none. I quickly began to find that my wife was likely to gain but little at this business, so I resolved to treat him in a style of more severity myself. Both wit and understanding, cried I, are trifles without integrity. It is that which gives value to every character. The ignorant peasant without fault is greater than a philosopher with many, for what is genius or courage without an heart? An honest man is the noblest work of God. I always held that hackneyed maxim of Pope, returned Mr. Birchall, 
as very unworthy of a man of genius, and a base desertion of his own superiority. As the reputation of books is raised not by their freedom from defect, but the greatness of their beauties, so should that of men be prized not for their exemption from fault, but the size of those virtues they are possessed of. The scholar may want prudence, the statesman may have pride, and the champion ferocity, but shall we prefer to these the low mechanic who laboriously plods on through life without censure or applause? We might as well prefer the tame, correct paintings of the Flemish school to the erroneous but sublime animations of the Roman pencil. Sir, replied I, your present observation is just, when there are shining virtues and minute defects. But when it appears that great vices are opposed in the same mind to as extraordinary virtues, such a character deserves contempt. Perhaps, cried he, there may be some such monsters as you describe of great vices joined to great virtues. Yet in my progress through life I have never yet found one instance of their existence. On the contrary, I have ever perceived that where the mind was capacious the affections were good. And, indeed, providence seems kindly our friend in this particular, thus to debilitate the understanding where the heart is corrupt, and diminish the power where there is the will to do mischief. This rule seems to extend even to other animals. The little vermin race are ever treacherous, cruel, and cowardly, whilst those endowed with strength and power are generous, brave, and gentle. These observations sound well, returned I, and yet it would be easy this moment to point out a man, and I fixed my eyes steadfastly upon him, whose head and heart form a most detestable contrast. I, sir, continued I, raising my voice, and I am glad to have this opportunity of detecting him in the midst of his fancied security. Do you know this, sir, this pocket-book? Yes, sir, returned he, with a face of impenetrable assurance. That pocket-book is mine, and I am glad you have found it. And do you know, cried I, this letter? Nay, never falter man, but look me full in the face. I say, do you know this letter? That letter, returned he, yes, it was I that wrote that letter. And how could you, said I, so basely, so ungratefully, presume to write this letter? And how came you, replied he, with looks of unparalleled effrontery, so basely to presume to break open this letter? Don't you know, now, I could hang you all for this? All I have to do is to swear at the next justices that you've been guilty of breaking open the lock of my pocket-book, and so hang you all up at this door. This piece of unexpected insolence raised me to such a pitch that I could scarce govern my passion. Ungrateful wretch, be gone, and no longer pollute my dwelling with thy baseness. Be gone, and never let me see thee again. Go from my doors, and the only punishment I wish thee is an alarmed conscience, which will be sufficient tormentor. So saying, I threw him his pocket-book, which he took up with a smile, and, shutting the clasps with the utmost composure, left us quite astonished at the serenity of his assurance. My wife was particularly enraged that nothing could make him angry or make him seem ashamed of his villainies. My dear, cried I, willing to calm those passions that had been raised too high among us, we are not to be surprised that bad men want shame. They only blush at being detected in doing good, but glory in their vices. Guilt and shame, says the allegory, were at first companions, and in the beginning of their journey inseparably kept together but their union was soon found to be disagreeable and inconvenient to both. Guilt gave shame frequent uneasiness, and shame often betrayed the secret conspiracies of guilt. 
After long disagreement, therefore, they at length consented to part for ever. Guilt boldly walked forward alone to overtake fate that went before in the shape of an executioner. But shame, being naturally timorous, returned back to keep company with virtue, which, in the beginning of the journey, they had left behind. Thus, my children, after men have travelled through a few stages in vice, shame forsakes them, and returns back to wait upon the few virtues they have still remaining. End of chapter. The Vicar of Wakefield by Oliver Goldsmith Recorded for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 16 The family use art which is opposed with still greater. Whatever might have been Sophia's sensations, the rest of the family was easily consoled for Mr. Burchell's absence by the company of our landlord, whose visits now became more frequent and longer. Though he had been disappointed in procuring my daughters the amusements of the town, as he designed, he took every opportunity of supplying them with those little recreations which our retirement would admit of. He usually came in the morning, and while my son and I followed our occupations abroad, he sat with the family at home and amused them by describing the town, with every part of which he was particularly acquainted. He could repeat all the observations that were retailed in the atmosphere of the playhouses, and had all the good things of the high wits by rote, long before they made way into the jest-books. The intervals between conversation were employed in teaching my daughters piquet, or sometimes in setting my two little ones to box to make them sharp, as he called it. But the hopes for having him for a son-in-law in some measure blinded us to all his imperfections. It must be owned that my wife laid a thousand schemes to entrap him, or, to speak it more tenderly, used every art to magnify the merit of her daughter. If the cakes at tea eat short and crisp, they were made by Olivia. If the gooseberry wine was well knit, the gooseberries were of her gathering. It was her fingers which gave the pickles their peculiar green, and in the composition of a pudding it was her judgment that mixed the ingredients. Then the poor woman would sometimes tell the squire that she thought him and Olivia extremely of a size, and would bid both stand up to see which was tallest. These instances of cunning, which she thought impenetrable, yet which everybody saw through, were very pleasing to our benefactor, who gave every day some new proofs of his passion, which, though they had not arisen to proposals of marriage, yet we thought fell but little short of it and his slowness was attributed sometimes to native bashfulness, and sometimes to his fear of offending his uncle. An occurrence, however, which happened soon after, put it beyond a doubt that he designed to become one of our family. My wife even regarded it as an absolute promise. My wife and daughters, happening to return a visit to neighbour Flanborough's, found that family had lately got their pictures drawn by Limner who travelled the country and took likenesses for fifteen shillings a head. As this family and ours had long a sort of rivalry in point of taste, our spirit took the alarm at this stolen march upon us, and, notwithstanding all I could say, and I said much, it was resolved that we should have our pictures done too. Having therefore engaged the limner, for what could I do, our next deliberation was to show the superiority of our taste in the attitudes. 
As for our neighbour's family, there were seven of them, and they were drawn with seven oranges, a thing quite out of taste, no variety in life, no composition in the world. We desired to have something in a brighter style, and, after many debates, at length came to an unanimous resolution of being drawn together in one large historical family piece. This would be cheaper, since one frame would serve for all, and it would be infinitely more genteel for all families of any taste were now drawn in the same manner. As we did not immediately recollect an historical subject to hit us, we were contented each with being drawn as independent historical figures. My wife desired to be represented as Venus, and the painter was desired not to be too frugal of his diamonds in her stomacher and hair. Her two little ones were to be as cupids by her side, while I, in my gown and band, was to present her with my books on the Wistonian controversy. Olivia would be drawn as an Amazon sitting upon a bank of flowers, dressed in a green Joseph richly laced with gold and a whip in her hand. Sophia was to be a shepherdess with as many sheep as the painter could put in for nothing, and Moses was to be dressed out with an hat and white feather. Our taste so much pleased the squire that he insisted on being put in as one of the family in the character of Alexander the Great at Olivia's feet. This was considered by us all as an indication of his desire to be introduced into the family, nor could we refuse his request. The painter was therefore set to work, and as he wrought with assiduity and expedition, in less than four days the whole was completed. The piece was large, and it must be owned he did not spare his colours, for which my wife gave him great encomiums. We were all perfectly satisfied with his performance, but an unfortunate circumstance had not occurred till the picture was finished, which now struck us with dismay. It was so very large that we had no place in the house to fix it. How we all came to disregard so material a point is inconceivable but certain it is we had been all greatly remiss. The picture, therefore, instead of gratifying our vanity as we hoped, leaned in a most mortifying manner against the kitchen wall where the canvas was stretched and painted, much too large to be got through any of the doors, and the jest of all our neighbours. One compared it to Robinson Crusoe's longboat, too large to be removed. Another thought it more resembled a reel in a bottle. Some wondered how it could be got out, but still more were amazed how it ever got in. But though it excited the ridicule of some, it effectually raised more malicious suggestions in many. The squire's portrait being found united with ours was an honour too great to escape envy. Scandalous whispers began to circulate at our expense, and our tranquillity was continually disturbed by persons who came as friends to tell us what was said of us by enemies. These reports we always resented with becoming spirit, but scandal ever improves by opposition. We once again therefore entered into a consultation upon obviating the malice of our enemies, and at last came to a resolution which had too much cunning to give me entire satisfaction. It was this. As our principal object was to discover the honour of Mr. Thornhill's addresses, my wife undertook to sound him by pretending to ask his advice in the choice of an husband for her eldest daughter. If this was not found sufficient to induce him to a declaration, it was then resolved to terrify him with a rival. 
To this last step, however, I would by no means give my consent, till Olivia gave me the most solemn assurances that she would marry the person provided to rival him upon this occasion, if he did not prevent it by taking her himself. Such was the scheme laid, which, though I did not strenuously oppose, I did not entirely approve. The next time, therefore, that Mr. Thornhill came to see us, my girls took care to be out of the way, in order to give their mamma an opportunity of putting her scheme in execution. But they only retired to the next room, from whence they could overhear the whole conversation. My wife artfully introduced him by observing that one of the Miss Flanboroughs was likely to have a very good match of it in Mr. Spanker. To this the squire assenting, she proceeded to remark that they who had warm fortunes were always sure of getting good husbands. But heaven help, continued she, the girls that have none. What signifies beauty, Mr. Thornhill, or what signifies all the virtue and all the qualifications in the world in this age of self-interest? It is not, what is she, but what has she, is all the cry. Madam, returned he, I highly approve the justice as well as the novelty of your remarks, and if I were a king, it should be otherwise. It should then, indeed, be fine times with the girls without fortunes. Our two young ladies should be the first for whom I would provide. Ah, sir, returned my wife, you are pleased to be facetious, but I wish I were a queen, and then I know where my eldest daughter should look for an husband. But now that you've put it in my head, seriously, Mr. Thornhill, can't you recommend me a proper husband for her? She is now nineteen years old, well-grown, and well-educated, and, in my humble opinion, does not want for parts. Madam, replied he, if I were to choose, I would find out a person possessed of every accomplishment that can make an angel happy. One with prudence, fortune, taste, and sincerity, such, madam, would be, in my opinion, the proper husband. Aye, sir, said she, but do you know of any such person? No, madam, returned he, it is impossible to know any person that deserves to be her husband. She's too great a treasure for one man's possession. She's a goddess. Upon my soul I speak what I think. She's an angel. Ah, Mr. Thornhill, you only flatter my poor girl, but we have been thinking of marrying her to one of your tenants, whose mother is lately dead and who wants a manager. You know whom I mean, Farmer Williams, a warm man, Mr. Thornhill, able to give her good bread, and who has several times made her proposals, which was actually the case. But, sir, concluded she, I should be glad to have your approbation of our choice. How, madam, replied he, my approbation, my approbation of such a choice? Never. What? Sacrifice so much beauty and sense and goodness to a creature insensible of the blessing? Excuse me, I can never approve of such a piece of injustice. And I have my reasons. Indeed, sir, cried Deborah, if you have your reasons, that's another affair. But I should be glad to know those reasons. Excuse me, madame, returned he, they lie too deep for discovery, laying his hand upon his bosom. They remain buried, riveted here. After he was gone, upon general consultation, we could not tell what to make of these fine sentiments. Olivia considered them as instances of the most exalted passion. But I was not quite so sanguine. It seemed to me pretty plain that they had more love than matrimony in them, 
Yet, whatever they might portend, it was resolved to prosecute the scheme of Farmer Williams, who, from my daughter's first appearance in the country, had paid her his addresses. End of chapter.